And so I spend a lot of time reading these days about the ecological crisis and climate change and what various governments and organizations are doing, uh, both either denying it or finding incredibly creative responses to it, protecting species and ecosystems and the air and the ozone and whatnot. And um, I feel grateful, as, as, as we can often do when we are facing pain and suffering, that we have some tools, we have some practices that help work with it, <coughs> that help us find some resilience rather than getting consumed in rage or despair, although sometimes that can happen. So I wanted to speak a little about this tonight, partly um, because it's part of this work. We can't do nature-based contemplative work without, without also contemplating the state of the ecology of the earth, which is in crisis. And we're living in a culture, at least in North America, at least the administration that's in denial of the crisis. Although the president did finally this week admit that climate change was real. Wow. He was pressed on, there's been a lot of press this week post hurricanes uh, where the press feeling a little bit emboldened to press certain politicians about their views, climate change. And he did squirmingly agree that it's not a hoax. She asked him if it was a hoax, if he, if he still believed it was a hoax. But of course, he does still deny that humans have that much to do with it. Delusion runs deep, <laughs> painfully deep. But you know, one can take heart in moments of progress, pathetic as they are. So for myself, it's been an interesting year in both deeply immersing in, in, in studies around, around what's happening ecologically and having this new experience of going out into nature and it feel, um, you know, just that the, the grief is just right there, you know, at the, just in the, in the background. And, um, you know, I go into nature pretty much every day, some form or other. And... Um, for nourishment, as you do, and for love, and for joy, and for you know all the all the reasons why we come here, and to have that experience now, concurrent or joined with this feeling of sadness and loss, 
is um, is different for me, and, and maybe also for you too, and maybe for some of you have been. I mean, it's not like I haven't been feeling it before this year, but it's 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 gone up in intensity. And every week, there's a you know like the UN um, ICCP or whatever the initials are that um, you know basically saying we have 12 years to turn the the climate change crisis around. Right? It's a lot. It's a short amount of time. So the feels you know, the the pressure is mounting and the the devastation is growing as we're seeing in this country: fires, hurricanes, storms, floods, uh, crop failures, you know, etc., etc. The list is long. And so, um, so it, it's important what we do with our attention, because right? what we do with our attention, attention dictates to some degree our well-being. And um, you know, and there's the polarity. There's on one end of the extreme, there's denial, putting one's head in the sand, and drilling in the Arctic because everything's fine, to overexposure to the catalogue of depressing news leading to rage, burnout, despair, sort of everything in between. And maybe you oscillate to some degree, we move in and out of that spectrum. Times we're plugged into what's happening, other times like, I can't deal, I I can't here, one more species that's going extinct, and, and we go, you know, we turn off the news for a while, which can be a healthy thing. So, um, you know, it's important in these times that we draw on our practice when dealing with pain and dealing with suffering and this issue is only going to get stronger. And the pain, ours or others, is only going to grow. It's a one-way street for probably the rest of our lifetime, unless something miraculous happens, which, you know, I'm always open to that. Um... So to be mindful of, of where you place your attention around this issue is important. You know that line I quoted from the Buddha, whatever the, the mind frequently dwells and ponders, become, ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So where is our mind inclining? And, and where is, is, it, and is that inclination healthy, skillful, useful or not? a poem from Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, and I'm going to have to mem- uh, just recall most of this from memory. She says something, I can't remember the first line, in the second line she says, um, in the first line something like, everything is lost, stolen, and betrayed. Death's great black wings scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone, then why do we not despair? In summer, 
the wind blows cherries into town, and at night the transparent skies glitter with new galaxies, and the miraculous comes so close to the ruined dirty houses not known by anyone but present for centuries. Misery gnaws to the bone, then why do we not despair? Cherries blow summer into town. A beautiful line, cherries blow summer into town. Despite the horrors that are happening, the aspens are turning gold, and the clouds are billowing in the sky, and the sun is floating towards the horizon. So it's important that we stay resourced. Coming to retreat is resourcing. Developing mindfulness and compassion is resourcing. Finding community and and connection in Sangha is resourcing. Going out into nature despite solastalgia is mostly resourcing. So it's important that we stay resourced in in these times, politically, ecologically, socially, personally, And I read that line from um, Walt Whitman, climb the mountains and get their good tidings. And that's what we've been doing all week. Get their good tidings. Nature's peace will flow into you as sunshine flows into the trees. Be a sponge and soak the goodness up. Even though the next moment your heart might crack open with sorrow for the forests that are suffering because of warming temperatures. So, you know, in, in this country where the, the political divide is so, is the political spectrum is so divided, um, both sides, I think, uh, um, uh, acting in ways that are not so wise or skillful. And um, on the left, um, as well as being cognizant of the problem, there's, there's, there's often a sense of there being no space and therefore no perspective and uh, uh, a sort of a traumatized, re-traumatizing uh, vortex happening. And so it's essential that we resource ourselves. Ground, open the heart. This is from Jack Gilbert, called A Brief for the Defense. He says, sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what is asked. Otherwise, the mornings in summer before dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing between the suffering they have have known and the awfulness of their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is sick. There is laughter every day in the streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. 
We must risk delight, but we cannot do without pleasure. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. So, staying balanced in our view, in our perspective. Not so easy, but important. Sometimes I take refuge in um, the deep time perspective, seeing that where we are is just one cycle of innumerable cycles that either we as a species have gone through or the planet is going through. And it doesn't take the pain away of the loss of this being in front of me, but somehow it, it allows us a capacity to hold it. This is an uh, uh, interesting piece um, written a while ago. All parts of the earth are built over, trampled, full of commerce. Farms and fields drive back the forests. Even rocks are cultivated, swamps are drained, and today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere on earth are residences, peoples, governments, and human growth now so clogs the world that it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them, and nature fails us. Terulian 150 AD. It's written 2,000 years ago almost. This is not necessarily new phenomena. The, 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 the extent is completely a different level of magnitude. But we've been moving in this direction for a long time. I don't know how many of you read um, uh, uh, was it Sapiens. It's a really interesting book that gives a sweep of basically the history of Homo sapiens and the centralization of power and cohesion that we develop through story and myth. And um, basically it's a systematic rise to ascendancy and destruction of, of everything else to support our needs, which is often true of any ecosystem when some uh, species gains dominance. Not always true. But I actually found that book very helpful in giving me a perspective of this is this is what happens when a when a when a species both gains dominance and also gains the means to dominate the environment and other species. And if it's not Homo sapiens, another time, another place, it will be another species, most likely. And we're in the mid- middle or the beginning of the sixth mass extinction of species, mostly human-caused, overpopulation, overdevelopment, climate change. But when I hold that it's the sixth mass extinction, and it probably won't be the last mass extinction, that this Earth's going to be around for a few more billion years, doesn't take away the pain of losing rhinos or pandas or whatever species is close to extinction 
but it can help give a sense of perspective. I read an interesting article the other day that said it will take the Earth somewhere between five and seven million years to to restore the the biodiversity that was here prior to Homo sapiens. Somehow I found that reassuring. (laughs) Some might find that completely depressing. Um, But it's like, oh, okay, well, that will probably happen, you know. Who knows? What I do know from our Dharma practice is we can't know for sure. And we certainly can't know for sure anything about the future. And we can take ourselves in long, painful stories about where we're going, and the, the, certainly the, the prediction is pretty bleak. If you read the, the data, it's pretty bleak on most levels, on most fronts. Most ecosystems. And yet, we can't know for sure where this will play itself out. There was a rare piece of positive climate change news last week where another UN body, I forget what it's called, um, I think the same body that was responsible for the banning CFCs uh, that were the principal cause for the ozone hole and that I think that bill passed in 1972, and in the last few years there's been a significant decrease in the size of the ozone, the, the hole in the ozone layer because of the, the the slow ripples from that banning and that, that treaty, and there's there's just been a new treaty signed by 132 countries um, that um, further bans another derivative of CFCs that are in most refrigerants and air conditioning units that when fully um, uh, brought out of production um, worldwide will uh, be a cause to stop, um, I forget how you you phrase this, it will basically create a 0.5 degree reduction in global warming, which is like a massive, massive mind-blowing thing that we can do that you know and we you know we know that when there's political will we can do a lot so so these kinds of things both give me hope not naive hope but but also what can happen and how we can't fully know where this is going to end how it will play out, and, and we won't see it in our lifetime because so many of these things are going to have long-term repercussions for decades and even centuries. Anyhow, my job is not to educate you as a climate scientist because that's not my specialty, but I do read a lot about it, and I also, but I'm tracking how it influences my mind and my heart and my perception and how I hold this, you know, overwhelmingly large uh, issue that one person cannot, of course, hold such a huge issue. But I think it's important to speak about because 
our mainstream culture is not talking about it. There was a research done a couple of years ago of they were chronicling the amount of hours that were dedicated to climate change on the major U.S. Uh, news networks, and it, the, the sum total was 260 minutes over a year. And most of that was the, about the climate deniers, who shall remain nameless. You know who they are. It's got a funny haircut. <laughs> so I, um, I'm a, I'm a, mm, uh, studied a lot with Joanna Macy, who's a beautiful teacher of the in, of, uh, of how to hold and manage the ecological crisis, and. Um, she tells a story of um, going to her teacher in, in, in a Tibetan teacher in, in Nepal and saying, you know, you know, um, how do I, how do I, how do we deal with this ecological crisis? And this was thirty years ago, probably forty years ago now. And um, she wanted to find out about the Shambhala prophecy, where, which is a prophecy of where you know, a, a basically sort of a. I'm not going to do it justice. I'm not going to talk about the Shambhala prophecy. But in that prophecy, um, he said that you know, during time in this time of crisis, that what will be needed is Shambhala warriors, and they carry two weapons. And she got really curious, and she's a nonviolent activist. She said, "What weapons are they carrying?" And he said, "They carry the weapons of wisdom and the wisdom of, and the weapon of compassion." These are the two skills, these are the two qualities that are needed at this time. And of course, whenever we look at the political (coughs) uh, scenario, we can see we're suffering from a tremendous lack of wisdom, whichever side of the political spectrum you look. And we're also uh, in desperate need of compassion, of feeling the pain of others and responding kindly and appropriately to the suffering of the poor and the homeless and the oppressed and all those who have no voice, all the species and endangered species who do have no vote, except in New Zealand, where where uh, animals have now been given um, human rights, a pioneering piece of legislation that will no doubt be replicated around the world, where we begin to see the incredible sensitivity of life that we mistreat horribly until we give them more rights. So um, one of the, the teachings that, that Joanna Macy and, uh, and I take very much to heart gives around the, the, the pain of the, of, of the ecological crisis is the importance to grieve, to feel the pain of the world, to feel the pain of what's happening to species and ecosystems and to, and to, and to grieve, let oneself feel the pain of it. Because if we don't let ourselves feel the pain of it, 
then we go numb. And she said, there's, there's more risk to the planet because of numbness than from what people are doing to it. The numbness in response to what's happening is a greater concern. Right? And we live in a culture that is hell-bent on numbing us out with distraction. Right? And you name it, right? We, this is the epicenter of distraction. Toys, gadgets, sports, TV, you name it. Netflix, much as we love it. <laughs> much as we like to binge on whatever it is. Maybe you don't, but you know, you're, whatever your version is of numbing out. And we go to sleep because it's hard to stay open, it's hard to stay conscious. Unless we feel and grieve and let the tears come. I probably cry every day about something in, in, the, in what's happening to the planet. Either, either I feel grief or I feel rage, or both, or sadness, or incomprehension. But I let those feelings move so, they don't, so I don't feel paralyzed. So I came up with my own um, sort of uh, my own little action plan for the climate crisis, not to fix it, <laughs> but to work with our own stuff around it. And it, I call it the four R's. And the first is to reacquaint ourselves with the beauty of the earth, to go into the wild and go often to remember what it is we love and to remember what it is that's being desecrated and to remember what it is that's being lost. Because if, if, that, if our contact with nature becomes abstract, then we stop caring because it's abstract. We don't care that much about abstractions. We care about living, breathing things like our loved ones and children and trees and animals. So to go out into the wild, into the parks, into wherever it is that you, you, you put your hand on the earth and you remember this beautiful you know, heaven on earth that we're living in and that it matters how it's treated. It matters who we vote for. Right? We've got to crucial election coming up in this country. You know, my criteria these days mostly for who I vote for is what's their voting record on dealing with climate, dealing with ecological issues locally, statewide, national. Because you know, if that issue isn't addressed, all the other ones for me pale into insignificance. <coughs> So to go into the wild often and to let ourselves feel the love. What I mentioned at the beginning of the retreat, we protect what we love. We become better stewards of that which we love. 
interesting coalitions happening these days in various parts of the country, in Wyoming and, and Montana and other places where fishermen and hunters and the like are teaming up with environmentalists because they all love the land. They all have a shared love of that pristine wilderness and they don't want some mining operation, some oil refinery coming in, some open pit coal dredging nightmare to come in. Because they're out on the land, loving the land. Whether we agree with hunting or fishing or whatever else, ATVs, you know, they're outside on the land. So the second R, to recognize what's at risk, to recognize what we're losing. And so for me, this means staying informed. It means reading a lot. Stuff that I don't really want to read, but I sort of can't help myself but read it and stay informed because I want to know what's happening. I want to know what this government or or my local government or what's happening in Europe, I want to know what's happening. And then the third is to reimagine possibility. Reimagine the possibility of human potential for change and transformation. And this is a little harder. This is a little bit more of a stretch. So I was teaching uh, some years ago with Paul Hawken, who's a wonderful environmentalist, deep thinker, um, and um, author of his new book is Drawing Down at 100 uh, Technological Proven Solutions to um, Reduce Carbon and Therefore Mitigate the Climate Crisis. There are 100 solutions that, that, are, that are already existent um, throughout the world from you know, the CFC legislation I just talked about to things like educating girls in developing countries, to a whole host of of strategies that if implemented and scaled would dramatically shift um, (coughs) the climate crisis that may happen when the crisis gets more to to a tipping point for some countries and governments. Anyhow, so he kept talking about this, he had used this phrase, the, the main problem with humans' response to climate change is we can't imagine the unimaginable. We're unable to imagine the unimaginable. So for many of us, we can't imagine that we will find the creative solutions in time or have the political and social will to resolve the crisis. He said that's a failure of imagination failure of um, misunderstanding potential and possibility. So one of the things he did, he said, so he had these slides, and he said, if you compressed all the carbon atoms in the world that are causing, contributing, uh, all, all the carbon atoms in the atmosphere, not in, not in the planet kingdom, in the atmosphere, if you compressed all those molecules they would probably fit into this valley. That's something to think about. Right? The carbon crisis, the cause of 
climate change, the molecules compressed would fit into this valley that we're in. So he was writing a book called Reimagining Carbon, this most complex and sophisticated and adaptive molecule in the universe, and trying to get us to see it, hold it in in a way that we can get our head around it, rather than being this mass... um, ubiquitous thing that's that's unsolvable so reimagining possibility and looking at the history of of human civilization and all the things that when push came to shove human beings were able to make some significant transformation including the ozone hole that I talked about Right? We look at recent history like the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Empire. It seemed impossible the year before that happened. The ending of apartheid, a rigid, brutal regime that held power for a long time. The end of the British Empire that was also equally brutal, that dominated the world for centuries. The end of slavery that in the, you know, the 1820s, when if you ask someone, you know, is can you imagine slavery ending? Be like today asking someone, can you imagine capitalism ending? Seems inconceivable, right? Mostly. Um, you know, but it took, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful book, of, uh, Barry, no, is it Bury the Chains? Yeah, Bury the Chains. Beautiful book about this core group of activists in England um, that rallied and, and, and harassed politicians in, in Britain that instigated you know, a lot of the revolution that, that transformed slavery. You know. Very inspiring. And all the establishment of national parks in this country. Like what an amazing thing. Right? A hundred years ago, hundred more years ago, there weren't any national parks. It was all fair game for deforestation and drilling and this amazing, beautiful thing. They're slightly under threat right now. Or the shift in how we relate to LGBTQI community. Right? That was a radical shift a few years ago that seemed impossible. You know, I have a nephew who came out as a gay man five years ago, six years ago, and, and he had an incredibly positive coming out experience. Like 20 years ago, that was probably inconceivable. Right? Just how we can shift depending on certain, certain conditions, endangered species legislation. What an amazing, pioneering, visionary piece of legislation to put resources and, and whatnot to protecting species. These are some of the species that I think are now taken off that list because of the success of that legislation. American crocodile, American alligator, whooping crane, gray wolf, bald eagle, short-nosed sturgeon, humpback whale, California condor, peregrine falcon. We have two nesting up there. They had three babies this year. Very great news. Atlantic leatherback turtle, blue whale, fin whale, California bighorn sheep, Florida manatee, etc. It's important to take this in also. right? We can look at the the additions to the Endangered Species Act, or we can look at those that are now struck from the list because they've gone extinct, 
and we can also look to what's being saved. Right? Where do we place our attention? Where do we incline? Both are true. Right? Protection and destruction are both happening. So I have this little page, we protect what we love on Facebook. I may mention it, I can't remember. And I only post positive news about climate change. Because we all hear enough depressing stuff, we can barely wade through another depressing article. But it's useful to know, you know, one of Paul Hawkins' books, uh, what was it called? Blessed Unrest. He was, his nonprofit, for whatever reason, decided to try and catalog all the nonprofits and NGOs and organizations that were doing good for people, uh, communities, and planet around the world. And they got up to 1.7 million organizations that probably had tens of millions of people working for them that were probably impacting the lives of billions of people. Right? We don't hear about that in the news, right? but there's millions, hundreds of millions of people doing amazingly good work on behalf of people and planet. Right? And it's important that we remember that. rather than get lost in our misanthropic, human-despising feelings. You know, I was just driving up in the car uh, with Andy and, and Betsy, and we were talking about electric cars, because I just took a Tesla for a test drive, because I've been coveting them recently. So I've got this beaten-up old Prius that needs some help, and I was like, well... Time to go electric, and you know, and we were saying, you know, the predictions by twenty less than ten, twelve years, most cars on the road will be electric. It's one of those things that it doesn't seem possible because of the domination of the auto, you know, the combustion engine paradigm we live in. But it's going to change very quickly. Right? In Europe, m- you know, most car companies are not going to be producing petrol and gasoline cars. And by 2030, remarkable transformation. Small, but something. You know, I'm, I'm very proud of, of California Governor Jerry Brown, who has been at the forefront of trying to galvanize um, political momentum around climate change. He coordinated this coalition with... Um, what's his name, Bloomberg from New York, and a coalition of governments, uh, mayors, businesses um, worldwide that, um, I forget the reach of, you know, the numbers all the blur, but this tremendously positive movement. Um, there's a... There's a, there's a a divesting fund uh, developed in Europe. They've divested $24 trillion worth of investments in non-ecological uh, industries. So there's good things happening. So the fourth thing, the fourth R, is re-inspire ourselves to act. Right? And we all have our part. You know, most of the change, I think, is going to happen on the larger scale, but we also have our individual responsibility how do we respond? How do we engage? You know, I'm often aghast living in North America that is one of the most, you know, consu- you know, 
biggest consumers of everything. And most people are blissfully unaware of that. Um, you know, I have a friend, so my friend Martin, who I do my mindfulness teacher trainings with, he comes out to California and he says, why don't I see any washing lines here? Like California is like baking hot. Nobody, has a, nobody hangs their clothes. How weird is that? Why does everybody use tumble dryers when it's 105 degrees outside? <laughs> and it's kind of funny, and it's also like, hello? <laughs> you know, it's like there's, there, there is, you know, as much as the, the, the important change is going to happen on a macro level, through government, through business, we also have our personal responsibility. I have a little washing line, a little clothes horse, and it's a hassle and it takes extra time, and I cannot let myself use a tumble dryer. It's the biggest, it's the biggest use of electricity in our house. Well, take an extra five minutes and hang your clothes and let the wind dry them. It's lovely. Crispy towels. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I keep meaning to, there's, there's a whole long list of things I see, coming from Europe, which is very frugal, mostly. And the, just this very simple waste that happens here is, is shocking. From food to um, just little things. You know, the plastic consumption here is just inconceivable. Anyhow, re-inspiring ourselves to action. So I like jo- uh, Joanna Macy's framing for this because it can seem overwhelming and what, you know, what difference it's going to do make what I do or how do I engage in a constructive way and she has the frame some of you are familiar with of um, it's called the um, I forget what she calls it but there's three three different types of actions we can do in our work and in our life as a supportive counterpoint to the environmental crisis and the first is holding actions so, the, so holding actions are those things that we more typically associate with ecological action. Greenpeace, you know, their boats, you know, jetting out in front of uh, whaling ships and drill, you know, drilling expeditions in the Arctic and, you know, activists standing, chaining themselves to bulldozers in front of the forest and, you know, NRDC and, um, you know... NAACP and, and all the organizations that spend a lot of time suing this administration and slowing down draconian legislation that's harming the environment. Right? These are holding actions. They're not the solution, but they're necessary to slow down, you know, whether it's an oil pipeline or a forest clear cut or whatever it is, that we can use the legislative process and the protest to slow these things down. And the second uh, facet she called uh, the alternative structures. And these are structures that are not part of the um, uh, you know, the consumptive industrial paradigm that's destroying the earth. So an alternative structure might be organic agriculture, for example, um, or green energy or electric cars, or things that shift us from uh, industries that harm the earth. 
ways of being. And the third is transformations of consciousness. And this is what we're doing here, changing the consciousness so we shift from this separate, self-protected state that that is mm, gets caught in othering um, that the, sh- the shift in consciousness primarily that helps us shift to a more global consciousness which is happening in some ways but not in others a shift in consciousness so um, we begin to care for those less fortunate a shift in consciousness that understands the impact of our actions and thinks you know, of the consequences of thousands of years from a particular action. So those are my four little R's. Reacquaint ourselves with the earth, recognize what's at risk, reimagine possibility, and re-inspire ourselves to act. And one last comment about Joanna and, and my conversations with her over the years. One of the things she said, and I went to her, we had lunch some years ago, and I said, you know, I'm just feeling a lot of despair and, and hopelessness about what's happening. And she said, and I said, how do you deal with it? Because she, she's been at the forefront of these issues for 40 years, and she's incredibly positive and dynamic and energized, and she's probably, I don't know how old she is now, 88, something like that. She's going to be 90. I mean, 90? Yeah. And she's as fiery as she ever was. And um, she said, the most important thing to do is to do something and do something with others. Find people locally, get together, whatever it is you care about. You know, restoring a watershed, getting rid of plastics in your home or your schools or your community or whatever issue it is. Find people who would care what you care about get together, get engaged, do something, because there's something about the power of humans coming together. And she said, it doesn't matter if you fail. The succeeding is not the point. The point is to engage. I thought it was very interesting. So I'll close with a a piece of writing from Robert Aitken Roshi, who is, was a lovely Zen teacher and um, also environmental activist. And so he wrote this piece called Verses for Environmental Practice. And um, it's, uh, found it in this lovely book called Dharma Rain, which is a wonderful collection of essays about Buddhism and deep ecology and the ecological crisis. Waking up in the morning, I vow with all beings to be ready for sparks of the Dhamma, the truth from flowers, children, and birds. Sitting alone in meditation, I vow with all beings to remember I'm sitting with mountains, children, and bears. Looking up at the sky, I vow to remember this infinite ceiling in every room of my life. When I stroll in the city, I vow to notice how lichen and grasses never give up in despair. Watching a spider at work, I vow to cherish the web of the universe. Touch one point and everything moves. 
Preparing the garden for seeds, I vow with all beings to nurture the soil to be fertile each spring for the next thousand years. When people praise me for something, I vow to return to my vegetable garden and give credit where credit is due. With tropical forests in danger, I vow with all beings to raise hell with the people responsible and slash my consumption of trees. With resources scarcer and scarcer, I vow with all beings to consider the law of proportion. My have is another's have not. Watching gardeners label their plants, I vow with all beings to practice the old horticulture and let the plants identify me. Hearing the crickets at night, I vow with all beings to keep my practices simple, just over and over again. Falling asleep at last, I vow with all beings to enjoy the vast, the dark and the silence and rest in the vast unknown. So let's sit together for a moment. Let those words... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.